Where's that dust coming from? Still finding debris after vacuuming? Eufy X10 Pro Omni Robot Vacuum has 8,000 PA of powerful suction to remove debris deep in carpets. And it's totally hands-free. Want to know more? Go to eufy.com. That's E-U-F-Y.com and discover X10 Pro Omni, the best-in-class all-in-one robot vacuum for only $799. The Telegraph. Telegraph. Podcasts. Hello and welcome to Brian Moore's Full Contact with The Telegraph. England's hopes of winning a Six Nations will go on for another year after a beaten by Ireland at Twickenham on Saturday. An already difficult challenge was made even harder by Charlie Yules, who got sent off in 82 seconds, the record sending off in the 4, 5 or 6 Nations history and that meant Eddie Jones decided to play the entirety of the game with just 14 men and despite... That setback, England did show an incredible amount of character and fight, and they matched the Irish in almost every department. Well, in fact, they actually mullered them in the strum as well. Um, but the Irish ran out eventual winners because they found a way to win, even though they didn't play well. We'll recap the game in detail with the former Ireland prop, Mike Ross, and with my co-host, Rob Vickerman. Next up for England is a trip to Paris to play in the Grand Slam game. Well, that's Grand Slam hopefuls, France. And the French remain on course to lift a first title since, can you believe it, 2010. They ground out a narrow win against Wales on Friday. And Wales, actually, they had the chances, could probably have stolen a famous victory, but ultimately they came up short. Uh, and it was another incredible defensive effort by the French. We'll discuss if England can go one step further and spoil the chances of the Grand Slam party in Paris this weekend. Elsewhere, we will preview Super Saturday, where all three games we played back-to-back and we'll answer some of your questions too. Lots regarding the scrum, England's ineffective attack and Spain's qualification for the World Cup. Delighted to welcome back alongside me the former England Sevens captain, Rob Vickerman. Hi, Rob. Hi, Brian. You're good? We, we were talking about chaos. There certainly was chaos. It didn't come in the manner, <laughs> didn't come in the manner that I thought it would. Uh, let's, let's get this out of the way, first of all. Um, when a player is going to learn, if you bend your knees, you're probably not going to get sent off you'll probably get the benefit of the doubt. If you don't, you can ask the referee to make a decision. And if it's a borderline hard one, um, like many say it was, I don't think it was borderline, but uh, then you're going to be in trouble. It's a really interesting point on two factors here, right? And we're talking about the professional game and they're having to relearn habits that they've spent potentially 20 years trying to get to, to win these dominant collisions. So that's one side of the conversation, which no doubt we'll have. The second thing is, the height of some of these players that are getting penalised, red-carded and yellow-carded. I'm sure there is a study to be had here about how players six foot five and above yeah. are more liable to make these high tackles, albeit the caveat being James Ryan's about six foot seven himself. So you'll just have any excuse on it. I mean, one thing we've got to say, and I know this firsthand trying to coach under 10s, it is so difficult to get players, when they're faced with a front-on collision, to go low. It's really difficult because naturally what they do first and foremost is look at a ball, which by and large is carried round about middle of the chest. Yep. So you've got to really change the whole psychology. And that's for kids learning to tackle, to try and to almost re-encrypt 
these processes and motor neuron habits that these players have. It's going to take some time, but undoubtedly, that cannot be in the game. It looks horrific. The outcome was horrific. And luckily, it was stopped far quicker than the one we saw on Friday night, which was, for me, worse with Thomas Williams when he yeah. was basically prone on the floor for 95 seconds. So, yeah, definitely and a red card. The, the, the other thing is, his head was on the wrong side. He was going across yeah. the player, he's in front of the player, which I know a lot of coaches don't mind um, because it actually stops the player um, because they had a fall over you or, or you actually tackle them. But if his head had been on the other side, who knows whether there'd have been a head contact at all. There might still have been. But at least, again, he would have done you know, something within his power not to have his head on the wrong side. So that, there's two, there's two aspect, aspects to that. Look, well, anyway, you know, after that, um, I don't think you could ask much more. Could you ask much more? From England against uh, against you know what is a a good Irish side? And just ask, ask you this: you know Ireland committed any amount of penalties. They com- they probably should have had a yellow card themselves and Henderson on the floor actually just before half time. Mm. Um, they made a lot of them for well they made a lot of errors handling errors and turnovers. To what extent do you think that was them uh, not quite up to scratch? Or the credit should go to England for putting an enormous amount of pressure on them. Well, again, this is a multifaceted answer, isn't it? One thing I think I find really intriguing post-game, because I was stood with Wayne Barnes after it in one of the, the hospitality suites, and I asked him, you know, psychologically, you've got referee in the middle of the pitch who is getting booed by 82,000 people, quite visibly and audibly, for the decision-making and communication process around it, which is a bit of a subtopic. But anyway, I said, psychologically, does that then impact the rest of your game? And he said, almost unequivocally, it does, because you need to be in the middle been accepted you need to make sure that what your decisions are doing are are fair to everyone and he says what that can sometimes happen is it then leans one way to slightly more favourable penalties perhaps against a team with 14 men which I think for many people who analyse the scrum of which you'd be one it did feel as though there was that little bit of leniency there without giving a yellow card away so if there are that many indiscretions in one area of play there would normally be a yellow card it wasn't so then you're thinking right well are are there is a referee and the officials as a team looking for ways to try and recalibrate what is otherwise a game that looked like it was going to get away from England. Now, I don't know the answer to that. I wasn't Matthew Ronald. But one thing I would say is Ireland won that handsomely, very much substandard to what we've seen before. But the glimpses where they were on it, where they got their offloading game, the power runners and the rap plays with Johnny Sexton spearheading it, they looked unplayable and absolutely left two tries, without a doubt at least two tries, um, back in the sheds, didn't they? So I think there's going to be big questions around the defence of England but massive pluses for Ireland's structure. It's just their execution they need to work on. Well, I'll make two points about the um, the illegalities and refereeing. Some of the Irish fans were posting on uh, Twitter, oh, look at this angle of, of Genge. He's at an angle. Well, I tell you what, if you watch Furlong, he takes a long bind, which he's supposed to do, which means his arm is on the show there. And then immediately, he tries to take a short bind. Now, you're not supposed to change your bind anyway. That's illegal. And secondly, someone said to people, do you know why he's taking a short bind? Oh, it's because, no, you take a short bind because it's much easier to lever your man in. And even if you're straight, if you get bound just under the armpit, which is what he was doing, you can twist the other guy. And as soon as you twist your opposite numbers, a loose head, his backside is going to shoot out because he's twisted him this way. Now, normally, that means that a gap opens up and the second row has nothing to drive on, and it completely knackers the scrum in terms of going forward. But what Genji managed to do was he just kept putting the pressure through, and I don't know how he did it, but Laws 
playing second row. They kept the pressure through, and that's what sent Furlong back. And sometimes he dropped it. So I'm sorry, I have no 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 truck with this. You know, Genji was scrummaging legally. Um, it's as simple as that. And and at the end of the day, on that, Brian, though. Yep. Are you going to give any credit to Jack Noel as well for his contribution? Oh, I thought Jack Noel. Well, at least he didn't bind on his on on his outside <laughs> leg like Tom May did. Um, also, I think the other the other point is this: is um, difficult to uh, um, say what England would have defended like had they had all fifteen men on the field. But one of the things that's been a bit worrying with England for some time is the way in which they can get outflanked. You know, they get narrow and then the ball round the side. You know, loads is one. Um, the disallowed try was another one, you know. And in the end, I thought that the great thing from Ireland's point of view was when they were able to bring on their substitutes. They had someone like Conor Murray, absolutely made for it. He'd been on the bench, seen it unraveling, seen it what needed to be done. Actually, we just need to play more phases, keep the ball before we start to go wide. And you know, when it came down to pinning the kicks, it was in a different league you know, to, to uh, Gibson Park. And Gibson Park is a very good scrum half and they're obviously playing for certain things. But what a replacement to bring on. And that's steady the game for Ireland and that's the, how they ended up, you know, ultimately ultimately winning. Um, what, in terms of playing with a man down, I don't subscribe to it's more difficult to play sometimes against a team with a man down. It's not, actually. It's just, just different. Um, and, you know, had Ireland matched England... Uh, up front for the Frosty. Men, maybe, you know, they would have made it tell earlier on. Um, from an Irish... From, no, 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 let's go from an England point of view. Wh- look, you can take the huge positive of, yes, people like Gange had an absolutely outstanding game. I still think Law's best position is in the second row because I think he's more powerful than his, his, his other numbers. And I do think Eddie Jones should, and I don't think he will, but I think he should look at the back row composition again and say, look, it's not just a case of what does Itoji or Laws playing at six bring to the back row as a unit. It's what you take away from a second row unit when you take them out of it. And if you put another back row player in, like Don Brandt on the blind side or Simmons on the blind side or someone else who habitually plays there, is that better than the aggregate of what you lose in the second row, putting either Itoji or um, Laws back there and bringing in someone in the back row. You know, I, I think it's a different, uh, it's a way of looking at it that I'm not sure they always do, but I'm convinced it's the right one. What do you think? Well, I think first and foremost, you've got someone like Mario Itoji, who's very hard to depict as a position because whatever he does, wherever he plays, he is setting a new standard for how much work he does in a game. I think the number on his back, largely for Mario. It is irrelevant personally for him. I think what you then look at is a collective, and luckily in a position where they could bring laws from six to the second row and say, right, well, we can adapt the line out because of that. Um, the one player you're probably more happy than anything else to get Simbin or sent off or whatever would be would be the second row because you can adapt around it. And I think you're right. I think for me the focus is around the back row because that is, I think you see it across all of the best teams that have ever been, uh, certainly in recent history and even past history, the crux of that team is around what the back row balance is. And you think typically to 2003, for people who remember it very well, you've got Back, Hill and Delalio. Uh, and, and even preceding that, because I know, because my old man used to love him, but Winterbottom again, with that mould of what he can do as, as a seven. You've got three very typical positions there with, with Hill, Back and Delalio. You've got the Grafton six, you've got the ball carry rate, and you've got the absolute work rate of, of, the, of the seven who's going to be out and out poacher. And I think 
there's certainly a degree of the current England back row where there is so much change and inconsistencies with that selection that they don't really feel as though they have got that role. And they had it with Billy Vunapola, who's out and out your carrier, and he'd give you 20-odd carries a game, and his defence was great. And, and seems to be losing that, and that stability he provided. I think they really are looking a bit fragile in that area. And the difference is Ireland, who also interchange their back row quite a bit, they're like for like. They're very similar type of players. Uh, and I think that's where England need to look at consistencies, which is a common theme throughout. And I'll, I'll give you a stat later on when we discuss about um, further selection as to why that is really the case across the whole of Eddie Jones's selections. Well, why don't we, why don't we, why don't we go on to, because I was going to ask, you know, about some of the criticism that was aimed at Ireland, but I prefer to do that when Mike Ross is here as well. Um, yeah. you, moving forward, um, I mean, we don't know what Curry's going to be like, but it doesn't look good. Um, no. To give them the best chance that they have in Paris, and they do have a chance, uh, because it has been shown, you know, the Welsh did show that France can be knocked slightly off their game. Um, I don't give them, you know, a great deal um, of hope there, but I, but, I, but, I, but I do say they go there um, with little expectation and the possibility, if they get it right, because they can do that against France. Um, what sort of selections are you talking about to give them the best chance there? Well, here's the one I was going to drop in, and this for me is the most powerful statistic you can get when you look at how teams are formed and, and, the, and the ability to be consistent. That game against Ireland was the 11th consecutive game where the 10, 12, 13 selection had changed. Now, a bit of centre in 15's game myself, I know. You cannot understate how important it is that you have that symbiotic relationship with your centre partner. It just needs to be there. Every team that's ever existed, they've had that consistent selection. Um, typically any team you can think of, you, you can probably name two or three centre pairings rather than just one centre. Um, and then doubling down on that, you're 10. You're 10, the, the, the catalyst, the curator, the lieutenant, everything about the 10 is about control. Now to have that axis change 11 consecutive games I know. is mind-blowing. I know. And I feel for the players because they've almost got a paralysis of choice and it's really not helping their development and it's certainly not helping England's. Well, if you look back at like Nonu and Smith, New Zealand... Uh, Am and Dialende being a settled centre partnership for a long time. Uh, Tyndall and uh, Greenwood, you know all the all the yeah. World Cup winning sides. Yes, yes, there are settled centre partnerships, and they're playing outside settled <laughs> partnership yeah. as well. You go way back, Australia, Horan, oh, Little. Well, you've well, got look, O'Driscoll, look, the, the, look the, you, the point is made, isn't it? In, yeah, in, totally. in, in the actual things, you can't name, you know, a side that that wins World Cups that doesn't have them that settled unit because it's so important. Well, tell you what, we've been discussing things uh, from an England point of view. Why don't we discuss it from an Irish point of view? Former Ireland prop Mike Ross is here. Look, there's been some criticism in the Irish press regarding the performance, but it was a bonus point win at Twickenham. They're so not that bad. Um, what, what do you make... Oh, I tell you what, first of all, what do you make of the, of the comments that have been made while you're playing against 14 men? So... From my perspective, I think if you, when you, I've been on teams that have gone down to 40 men and all of a sudden the pressure's off, right? Because nobody expects you to win now, okay? Nobody expects. So you might as well just go out and play as hard as you can. And if you win, you're a legend. If you lose, well, you're down to 14 men. So I remember like, I played in that game against South Africa in 2016 when uh, CJ Sander got sent off. And, you know, it was just, we had nothing to lose. You're the man to, uh, exactly the man to ask about, did where did England's scrum um, dominance come from? 
Uh, very clever tactics. Uh, look, I, I was uh, I was wa- I was going mental at the game actually because I was watching it. I was at the stands, you know, so I didn't have the benefit of replays. But I've since gone back and looked at it, and yeah, you can, England definitely in the sense two or three scrums. There was a couple of scrums I felt, you know, according to the laws of the game, that probably should have been reversed the penalties, you know, because what was happening is England were creating a three on two. They were they were kind of pivoting around furlong. And if you look at the, if you look back to replay, sometimes Irish scrum isn't going back; it's more kind of skewing around like that, yeah. like like spinning. And uh, Raynell had decided early on that uh, England were dominant, and um, was was penalising accordingly. But look, it, overall, I'd say England definitely edged the scrums, but there was a, definitely at least two scrums that could have gone, could and should have gone the other way. Yeah, I mean, Tag Furlong didn't help himself by, by shortening his bind each time, did he? You know, takes a long bind initially, then comes under the armpit. And if anything goes wrong uh, from the sidelines with, 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 uh, with, with people who are just looking for one thing, if the bind goes then, then he's definitely going to get pinged because he's the one who's moved, irrespective of whether he's taken it down. Uh, so that's one there. I mean, um, in, in the end, we saw, look, what Ireland did when they were in full flow. Um, it isn't possible now to say uh, they did it against 15 men because they, they didn't. But I still got the feeling that when they were playing with fluency, they were all, well, they were very, very difficult to stop, irrespective of the fact that England were, were struggling with, you know, a defender down. Um, do you think that, you know, in the end, the fact that they rescued that keeps them completely on track? Are there any, are there any question marks about that? Look, we made heavy, heavy going of it. I mean, if you take it, start back to the start of the match, uh, England get a man sent off. We score a try almost immediately. And then we almost immediately get another try after that, which was ruled on for a knock-on. And I think if, we, if that try had stuck, I don't know would England have been stayed with it in the game as long as they did. But like from, from an England perspective, I think the worry for England is the lack of tries they're scoring at the moment. You know, I mean, they, the attack just hasn't looked that threatening, I mean, the league game aside. So, you know, if England want to be competitive, they need to start scoring more tries. Now, I know it didn't help them to be down to 14, but, you know, uh, uh, all their points came from penalties. So they they weren't really threatening. From an Irish perspective, yeah, it was a little bit concerning. It took us that long to, you know, finish the game off, considering we, we were, you guys were manned out for 78 minutes. But, <clears throat> you know, England put, like, i got to take my hat off to England. They put up a hell of a vice. You know, they, they got, they're deriving energy from all the scrum penalties they were getting. They were, you know, really making it hard to get our our game flowing. And the two, like, I, I was, like I said, I was in Twickenham and the, the crowd were tremendous. They were really good. It was an amazing atmosphere, wasn't it? One person that would have been revelling in that, Mike, would have been Johnny Sexton. Came out in the mid- midweek about it being pretty much the last time we'd be playing at Twickenham. Announced his retirement post-World Cup. How important is he for Andy Farrell going forward, do you think? I, I think he's very important. I mean... No, no other out half in Ireland has put their hands up and taken the jersey off him. Yes, you know, and uh, he's still the best man for the job. Uh, hopefully, he'll be able to keep that going until the, the World Cup. But you know, just just like Johnny took the jersey off Rowan Nagara, it's incumbent upon someone else to come up and step up and start putting pressure on him because at the moment, I think he's still the the leading contender for that ten jersey. You know, I think it's as simple as this, isn't it? Look. Uh, Ireland proved they can play without Sexton, uh, mm. and they can play well without him. But they are just much better when he's there, <laughs> you know. And for the of the time being, when he carries on playing in the way he is, and I ask you this, this, Mike. One thing that I thought you know stood out was 
um, the respective benches came on, and of course they're doing different jobs because England are trying to shore the thing up with a with a man down. But when you get someone like Conor Murray, who comes with all the experience, and suddenly it looked a lot more steady, didn't it? Very different player to Gibson Park, but it looked as though they'd said, right, well, actually, wait a minute, we don't need chaos at this point. We just need to do things well and in a set way because the gaps will open up. It's not like 15 against 15 where we have to create things. Things will come provided we keep our foot on the pedal and stop giving the ball away, stop making mistakes, stop giving penalties away. And from that, for, for that you know, the reason, you know, I think the Irish bench you know, can play several different ways. And that must be a huge thing going forward, mustn't it, for Farrell? Yeah, like it's been quite tough for Conor Murray, you know, slipping the second choice because, you know, for many years he was probably one of the best in his position in the world. Uh, but in, in, like, like you said, Brian, he came on, he stayed up the ship and I felt at times Ireland were very guilty of trying to force things. I mean, yes. how many times we forced the that final offload and you think it like Ty passing to Bundyaki, you know, just for, if he held on to it, like you said, build the phases. There's a gaps going to appear somewhere because England are a man down and will take advantage. Where sometimes we try to score straight away and maybe need a bit more patience. And certainly, with uh, you know Conor Murray coming on, you know that experience, been there, done it all at top level, and you know he knows. And he's also watching from the sidelines. So often you get a different perspective to the guys who are playing. You can see exactly what needs to be done. It must be an interesting position for an Irishman still in the chance of winning the tournament, but knowing you'll have to be geeing on England on Saturday. How will that feel for you as, as a stout Irishman? <laughs> no, no, I have no problem. I'll be, I will definitely, you know, be, be shouting for England. But guys, I, like I, I'm finding it very hard to see past a French win. Especially, mm. look, they're at home. You know, they know what's at stake. There, there, there'll be eighty thousand instead of France, and you know the way they're playing. I know they didn't really. Sh- their, their attacking game didn't really get going against Wales in the second half on the weekend, but their defence was phenomenal. Uh, just a final uh, uh, question, uh, Mike. In terms of what Andy Farrell would have wanted to achieve with the Six Nations, obviously we wanted a Grand Slam, that's the first thing, obviously we wanted a title. If he doesn't get either, how many points out of ten, you know, roughly, do you think he'll, he'll give their, his play, the, the, the Irish players for this campaign? I, I would I would say probably around a seven out of ten. You know, I mean they, they've uh, they've played very good rugby at times, and they were you know, but for a couple of in a couple of turnovers against France, they they could have come out there with a win. Yeah. You know, I think for me that was probably one of the games of the tournament. You know, if I was neutral and I was watching <clears throat> Ireland versus France, I thought it was a tremendous match. Look, if 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 you get a championship win, definitely take that. But um, yeah, I think around seven out of ten. It's like there's there's been. It's been generally mostly good, but there's been a few, definitely a few things we can improve on, and we'll have to improve on, uh, you know, because the World Cup's coming up next year, and you know there's going to be a couple of summer tours. Well, that's probably more than England will get out of ten, I would think. I'm, I'm absolutely certain, unless they beat France in a famous victory. Uh, Mike, thanks for joining us. Thanks for your uh, contribution as always. Cheers, mate. Okay, cheers. Thanks, Thank Brian. you. Well, it is France up next for England, uh, and they squeezed past Wales in Cardiff on Friday night. Um, I was actually happy that Dan Bigger was angry after this game. Uh, he said he was disappointed and angry that they hadn't won. And that, to me, is a better attitude than saying, oh, well, we came close. Because on the, on the night, they could really have put France away. And, in, and indeed, I don't like the heroic losers tag, but I would say they were one juggled pass away from being heroic winners 
Uh, it wasn't the most sympathetic of passes of Jonathan Davies, but you know him being the player he is, you'd probably have backed him to take it, and he didn't do. And that was the the difference in the end between the the the, the, the sides. Um, is there any sense in which I in which Wales can can feel hard done by, or, or was it in their own hands? Well, ironically, not in their own hands. I think you've yeah, been well, far yeah. too kind to him there because that was an easy catch. That was an easy catch. Um, and Falatau's offload was, was brilliant for it. So I think, yeah, you know, in their own hands, they'll take positives from that. Clearly they will. And they're, they're in that realms of mediocrity in the tournament, aren't they? They'll know that, you know, they didn't have the chance of winning it. They'll be disappointed with previous games gone by. And I do think the way that they did play, and certainly Bigger being pivotal to that, will buoy them going forwards. You know, they're taking on Italy in their last game. Very different prospect to the other two games that'll be happening. Um, but I think their biggest concern is around trying to get the regions functioning well again. And, and that will be acutely aware to not just the Welsh team, but the Welsh public as well. And the fact that, you know, the, the media tagline going into that was that it wasn't sold out. You could see the empty kit seats on every single kick that was taken. You don't want those messages to be going forward. It's about a spirited performance. They pushed the French team, who realistically you didn't think they'd get that close to, very close and, and could indeed have won it. So yeah, very much positives there. And I think, you know, it's great to see Bigger's natural competitiveness coming out because that is infectious. And you've got your captain, your leader and your talisman saying that. It will rub off on everyone else. Well, I do think the, um, the, just the addition of Navidi, for example, brought so much more. Now, I'm not, saying the, I'm not saying that the players who have had to step in for him are substandard. They've, 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 you know, they've fought well uh, and going forward, they can play a role. But when you're missing, I mean, Tipperick as well, the, the things could have been very different for, uh, for, for, for Wales all round. And I felt that uh, when they got into a groove at Twickenham, and again, they had, uh, it was a bit, you know, a little to, uh, to hold them back because they were behind and just had to go for it. They looked very fluent. And I think of all these sides uh, that, that do their report card at the end of the Six Nations, yes, Wales have not done well. They've been performing in the pool of mediocrity oh, with Scotland and England. But... I think there are more reasons for them, uh, and I wouldn't, they won't want to use the word excuses, but there are the reasons for their underperformance that don't exist elsewhere, let's put it that way. And I think they've also had the, the toughest draw with it. I mean, that initial hit out against Ireland really scarred them. They got yeah. battered that, 29-7. Then their redemption was the following week, taking down Scotland by three points. And then following that, going to Twickenham and losing by four. I mean, it really is tough. And then finishing with Italy almost feels like you know your tournament's done. Um, they'd be disappointed with how they went against France, but I don't think they're realistically going to win that game. And currently, you know, they're sitting at a table, which people do look at, with just one win from four. And, and they'll hope that they're going to smash Italy, get the bonus point, and leap from Scotland and England. But, you know, there is a chance that they could stay in fifth. Yeah. Uh, we've spoken, and Mike Ross highlighted the struggling England attack. Wales failed to score a try for the first time in the Six Nations at home since 2009. Um... As I said, I thought Wales against England showed far more uh, attacking cogency. But let's look at the French defence. It's been a one thing that has been uh, vastly improved. It, it actually was improving before Sean Edwards got there, but it certainly has improved after that. And it's been the foundation of holding Ireland off, holding Wales off. Um, any chance that England can breach it? Well, it's going to have to come down to some serious amounts of multi-phase play because that's the only time they look slightly frail. And even so, that has been their point of difference, that typically French, after 10, 12, 13-plus phases, previous Six Nations iterations, 
would have been absolutely fragmented. It'd have been chaos to use our word from last week. So I think that more structure coming in, the ability to know when to compete, when not to, adding in players with just the most amazing work rate, like Villiers, even as a winger, is constantly contesting the ball. Valencia's a pain and the sheer size of half of the French pack are just difficult characters to try and move. So I think there will be tested England, certainly trying to break down the French defence. But at the same time, flipping it and, and saying how the Irish attack have gone this tournament, they've shown that they can score against everyone and they've got the most tries they've, they've ever scored in the Six Nations and still with one game to play. So I think France are beatable, they are breakable, but it's going to be one hell of a contest. I think England are right to try and play the mind games because that's probably their only advantage against a French team otherwise that are looking very strong across the board. Um, Scotland, I mean, they saw off Italy as expected, but they conceded 22 points now. Um, it, Jones will get a lot of flack if uh, England don't win in, in Paris and there'll be a lot of discussions around all sorts of games. But I think from where they started, the Scots are probably going to be or should be the most disappointed um, because they um, have not really looked cogent in any game. I mean, you know, it, it was it was a game which they, you know, they were saying, "Well, we scored the tries and, and so on," but I'm afraid, you know, I I can't see, I, I I can see a lot more crosses on the report than ticks for them this year. Yeah, again, just looking at the structure of the fixtures, because this plays such a massive part in any type of Six Nations conversation, your home legs, the emotion involved in it. For them to have beaten England at home first game, that was always going to take a massive chunk out of them. If they had that potential with a follow week after it, then there's a chance that they could have kept that momentum, kept that spirit high. But because it was straight into that Welsh performance in which they lost again by three points in an incredibly tight game. I think they've really had a tough run. And then the last place you want to play France after those two games is next up. So I think, yeah, certainly the structure of it hasn't favoured Scotland. But to call them frustrated is probably a compliment because they have now got expectation of performances. And you see it intermittently in games, albeit, you know, Italy had a bit of a nibble against them at the weekend where they did uh, go ahead slightly. So I think the inconsistencies are what breeding frustration, but still a positive trajectory for Scotland. Well, on to some questions uh, from our uh, listeners. Daniel, both England and Wales appear to be struggling to score tries. With Wales, I think it could be a player issue and comes down to who they're available. With England uh, and the players available, could it be a coaching problem? Also, are England missing Owen Farrell's drive and leadership both on and off the field? Well, um, Owen Farrell's drive and leadership, I don't think there's been a lack of leadership or drive on the field. I think it's more a question um, of selection. And we come down to the points that Rob and I have made last week, this week, and indeed many times before. If you can't get settled partnerships in units, you're going to struggle. And I'm sorry, but I, I you know, I don't, don't subscribe to the view. And, and by the way, neither does anyone else seem to subscribe to the view that the number on your back is irrelevant to where and how you play. It certainly just isn't. Uh, and that the familiarity breeds without that. You might have a point if you pick the same 15 every week and then ask them to juggle around when they're on the field. But where they start is a different matter. You know, and where they start from things uh, and, and, and knowing what their uh, partner or their two partners are going to be in their units is absolutely crucial. So, yes, it is a, it's, I think it's more selection problem than coaching problem. Yeah, I'd agree with that. And also say, it's talking about change, they've got a new attack coach. You know, Martin Gleeson coming into it with a rugby league mentality and a credible player he was and coach since at Wasps. He's trying to talk about this new dynamic way of playing that no England team have ever done before. And you're not just going to do that 
straight away, that's going to take a long time. The one thing he tries to champion is interchangeable positions, that it doesn't matter what number's on your back, you should still be part of a system that can attack. And how often are these players together? How often are these England players playing in a team that is consistent? And, and it's not enough, and that's going to take a long time. However, we don't really let them have that as fans, as critics, as, as pundits well, in the Well, Rob, game. I mean, they they look, to... they've, been in, they've been in camp a long time, but I would just say this to people, you can practice as, as much as you like, yeah, you know, uh, internally. It's games that count. Because you'll never replicate. You you just can't replicate the emotion, the tension, the you know the, the daft things that people do under pressure, the good things that people do under pressure, uh, or the, indeed the pressure. You just you just can't do it, and you need to have test matches for that. Uh, anyway, one from Nate. Despite the loss against Ireland, a lot of commentators suggesting that the performance and attitude have galvanised England and will help us uh, as we head up to the World Cup in France. What are your thoughts? Um, Yes and no. Look, I, I never thought that England lacked uh, spirit or character. I, you know, the players that are in there. I never thought that they were ones to give up and I never thought that I never questioned that aspect of it. For me, it, it is more technical. There are more technical aspects. There are more selection aspects. So, yes, it will. I mean, a lot of players were quite rightly buoyed uh, by the fact that they'd put in that sort of performance against a very good island side. But at the end of the day, when you look at it cold... They, they, they conceded a bonus point for four tries and it was self-inflicted. So we've got to look inwards and say, yeah, we did lots of good things in extremis. We shouldn't be in extremis. We shouldn't put ourselves in that position. And, you know, let's not do it again. Yeah, I, I'd agree wholeheartedly with that. Yeah. Pete, should tackling only be allowed below the waist to avoid the proliferation of head contacts that currently within the game? Head on head is clearly dangerous and the correct sanction is red cards. But those are ruining the game as a contest and spectacle. I really, I really hate this word, ruining the game. Like When people use it, it's such a strange thing to try and depict your emotion about ruining a game. We're talking about the welfare of players and the impact of that going forward. Now, to answer the question directly, it's what I now coach in the 10s. So don't even think about going above the waist because when you're playing in 15 years, there is very unlikely going to be any tackle allowable higher than the waist, which means flipping it you're going to get loads of offloads and encouraging running rugby and support lines and keeping that ball free and moving everyone around. So the, the mantra has to change. And I think the difficulty is, as I mentioned before, you're hardwired to target a ball. You're upright because you're not necessarily set, knowing as soon as you do lower or dip, you are then stationary. So every single defence coach on the planet for 15, 20 years since professionalism has got people always dynamic, always moving forward. And the last thing is dipping into the contact. And to change that, it's, it's really difficult, especially when you're six foot eight. You know, I'm on the panel, I see it week in, week out when we have to sit there as the dis- disciplinary team and look at the clips. We go slow motion, which again, you shouldn't really do, but slow motion views of how players mechanically are changing. It is so difficult if you are six foot five and above to hit someone five foot ten, because as soon as you are dipping down to their waist, that is a significant drop of height, which means more often than not, you're going to miss the tackle. So there are problems with it, but, but the, the fact is this, uh, the fact is this, at the end of the day, Pete, player safety is going to be put first, it should be put first, and if there are games in courts ruined, that's the players to get round that, I'm afraid. One from Toby, the last one from Toby, with Spain qualifying for the World Cup, and there could be three South American teams taking part, what needs to be done to develop uh, the game in that area and what plans could World Rugby do to help the, profession, the progression? I'll jump on this, uh, partly because I do actually commentate on the Rugby Europe Championship. Um, so we have been covering that for a number of years now and it's fantastic rugby first and foremost. Very, very entertaining. 
You've got Netherlands in there, Georgia, Portugal, Spain, um, as, as well, Romania trying to compete creating this second level of European rugby. The Spanish have had a real drive for about five or six years to try and get that going. There was a bit of controversy with their last World Cup qualification with both the bands and the brawl. So for them to be currently top of the Rugby Europe Championship and second for the Rugby World Cup qualifications is amazing because I saw their sevens down there, which they got offered as a World Rugby offering, and there is appetite, but people need to see it. You're competing against one of the strongest nations in football and that is going to take some real inertia. They've got it. They're going to be at the Rugby World Cup 2023. They're neighbours where they can all get across in mass. And that's very, very exciting for the game because the Spanish, economically, could be a big player in European rugby as well. well I'll tell you another thing, Toby. Um, I toured uh, Spain with the England only 23s a long then. That was a long time ago. Um, and the strength of the rugby around the Basque region, you know, that's where it is, around there, around the corner from Biarritz, uh, San Juan de Luz and whatever you. Tremendously strong, um, just in that in that in that aspect. It, it comes back to what I've said every week for any weeks uh, for the last ten years. If anyone wants to to bother to listen, the second tier competition in Europe needs more focus, so it gets more publicity, so that that and you need the automatic route to get into these six nations. I don't care whether it's every three years, four years, whether you have to play home and away, whether it's triple down. You've got to have a way for these teams to come in. And I'm sorry. Um, and people will say, yeah, well, you're English. And of course, you're going to say that anyway, because England will never happen. If it did happen to England, they deserve to go down. Um, but the real problem is this. One, there's no appetite to get the automatic stuff. But secondly, the drop off from the Six Nations to the secondary tournament is so big that it's very difficult if you have to exist for three, four years outside that with a lack of profile, the lack of money, sponsors would go and so on. That's, a, that's the real problem. The second division tournament needs the awareness and the, the quality, the, the publicity for it needs, needs heightening, and then you need to give them the opportunity automatically to come to the top table. And that is the only way, I'm afraid, that is the only way which you will grow the game and get self-sufficiency. Otherwise, you are going to be reliant on what you're doing now, which is World Rugby handing out cash to them, because that's the only way we'll survive. And we can't get, you know, no one wants to keep doing that. Well, that's all we have time for this week on Brian Moore's Full Contact with the Telegraph. By the time we come back, we will know whether the French are Grand Slam champions. Um, Let's face it, they've been the best team so far in this tournament. But will that propel them onto World Cup glory? Who knows? But we will certainly have the answers here. Thank you very much for uh, my co-host, Rob Vickerman, and my guest, Mike Ross, for joining me. If you've enjoyed this episode, you can check out all our previous episodes by subscribing to the Full Contact podcast channel. I'll be back next week to recap the final weekend of the Six Nations and the tournament as a whole. Until then, goodbye. Goodbye.